Okay, Nehemiah, well, you know the context here of chapters 1 and 2 that, uh, that we've just read. Uh, Judah had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and then under Ezra they, they returned and they, they rebuilt the, uh, the temple, but not with a very great enthusiasm, unfortunately. And there was lots of adversaries, lots of problems, and the work sort of got bogged down. And then Nehemiah comes, comes onto the scene. Now, chapter 1, verse 2, Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. First thing to notice, he says that those Jews had escaped. Well, a funny sort of word to use, surely, to say that these Jews had escaped, because you remember that Cyrus had made the decree and said, well, you can all go back, and he gave them whatever they wanted, money, support, offered troops to accompany them back and said, whoever wants to go back and rebuild the, the house of their God, go, I'm with you, etc., etc. Quite, uh, in one sense, unusual that he should do that. And yet, it says here they escaped. Well, he, he Cyrus did absolutely everything for them. In what sense, then, did they escape? Well, in Zechariah, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and in Isaiah 48, 20, and a couple of other places, the prophets had told the Jews in Babylon to flee from Babylon, to escape from Babylon, to run away from the place. And yet most of them didn't. Now, I just want to pause there and take a, take a message, to take a lesson for ourselves. One of the saddest things for me about the book of Esther is the way that it ends with the Jews there in Babylon, everything's going well for them, their popular archaeology shows us that they were actually the bankers, that they were really well uh, accepted there in Babylonian society. And yet the prophets had said, quit all this nonsense and go back that long, dangerous way across the desert or long way round, round the Fertile Crescent, and go back to that land that was still in ruins after being smashed up by the Babylonian armies 70 years ago and rebuild this place that's got somewhat aggressive, unfriendly people living in it now, uh, and rebuild this place for God, and build his house there, and, uh, and get things going there. Now, people didn't want to do that, and yet God had said, escape from Babylon. And I think when they're told to do that, to, to flee from Babylon, Isaiah and Zechariah had said, it was because of the spiritual danger of the good life get out of this, this spiritual shark tank that you're in and, and get back there to that ruined land of Judah and rebuild it. And Nehemiah, even though he was, if you like, caught up in it all, I mean, he hadn't returned with the first exiles. He was the cupbearer to the king. He, he was high up in Babylonian society, uh, although he, he was Jewish. Um, yet he realized that this place spiritually is a shark tank. And he talks about the Jews that had returned, as those that had escaped. And I think every one of us can relate to some extent to, to that attitude that Nehemiah had. Okay, and they said to him, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Well, it's easy to misread that, and to think that it's actually referring to what the Babylonians did. But if that was the case, then I don't see why Nehemiah would be so upset about it, because he knew full well that 70 years ago or more, uh, the Babylonians had broken down the wall of Jerusalem and burned the gates with fire. And 
In Ezra, Ezra 4 verse 12, the opponents of Ezra's rebuilding program had written off uh, and complained to, to the, uh, the king that these Jews have come back and you know what, they've rebuilt the walls and they've rebuilt the gates. So when he says here that he heard that the wall and the gates have been broken down, this is a result of the Samaritan opposition. And he was pretty disappointed that uh, the, these great prophecies about rebuilding the wall and the great prophecies about Jerusalem being restored, it seemed they weren't coming true because the opposition had broken down the wall and, and the gates. And so he, that's why he's, he's so upset. And he prays. And he prays this prayer, a prayer that he, he has obviously thought out. Now you can go through this, this prayer that starts there in uh, verse 5. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, etc. And go through this prayer and see that almost every phrase that he's using there is taken from the scriptures, particularly from Solomon's prayer uh, and various parts of uh, Deuteronomy 28 where, where Moses had explained the blessings and the cursings that would come for, for disobedience, etc. And also from several of the Psalms of, of David. Now we all want to know how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. We, we all really say this. So how then can we pray? Well, it's not as simple, I don't think, as getting a, a list of Bible verses and tagging them together rather nicely and, and saying, oh, there you are, that's how you pray. That, that's too sort of primitive. It's, it's not a it's not a case that the, the, the more sort of correct your, your words are, your language is, the more sort of likely God is to hear you. Not at all. Rather, I take this that Nehemiah had so read himself into the mind of God through reflecting upon God's word that he knew that what he was asking for was according to God's will. Now in John 15, the Lord Jesus says that if his words abide in us, then we will ask what we want, what we will, and we will get it. But John, in his letters, says that if we ask anything according to the will of God, we will get it. So putting those two ideas together, we come to the conclusion that if God's word abides in us, if his will becomes our will, then it's one and the same. We'll ask what we want and get it in prayer, or we'll ask what he wants and it comes true because our will becomes his will. And so that's why here, when you, you read of Nehemiah's wonderful prayer, it's continually quoting from earlier scripture. This one example actually at the end of the chapter, chapter one, verse 11, he says, uh, grant your servant mercy in the sight of this man. Look at those three Hebrew words there. You could circle them in translation grant mercy and sight it's three different hebrew words there they recur in first of kings 8 verse 50 first of kings chapter 8 verse 50 and it's quite clear that he's uh, he's quoting from that where this is in the prayer of the dedication of the temple where we're, we're told that if they would repent of their sins, God would give them compassion or mercy in the sight of those who carried them captive. So then, 
Nehemiah knew that, and he's saying, well, in 1 Kings 8.50, it said that if we repent when we're in captivity, God will grant us mercy in the sight of those who carry us captive. So everything that he's asking, he's asking on the basis of knowing God's will about those things, on the basis of knowing what the Bible says, that is, knowing God's will, and his will becoming God's will. There's a tremendous merging of minds between him and, and God. And I, I think that is the, the key to successful prayer. The key, if you like, is praying for the right things. We're praying for what we want all the time. That may not be what God wants. Now, there's a lot of similarities here with Esther. He, Nehemiah, comes very bravely before the, the king and he asks for his, uh, his people. Now, let's just, uh, I know Esther comes after Nehemiah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the incident of Esther uh, happened, or the history of Esther happened, uh, happened after Nehemiah. It's just the, uh, the order of, of the book. Now, he fasts, chapter 1, verse 4, and then uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he comes into the king and says, if it please the king, and if your servant have found favour in your sight, then uh, help me to do something for my people. Very similar with Esther, isn't it? She calls everybody to fasting, that's Esther 4 verse 16. And then this whole language that he uses in chapter 2 verse 5, if it please the king and if your servant have, has found favour in your sight, this is exactly what Esther says, Esther 8 verse 5. She says, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, etc., etc., let it be written to reverse the letters of Haman. Another similarity, chapter 2, verse 4, the king says to Nehemiah, for what do you make request? For what do you make request? This is really the very same words that the king said to, to Esther. Chapter 4, verse uh, Esther uh, chapter 4 verse 8 that she also made request to the king now she was frightened that uh, she wouldn't be accepted by the king because the king hadn't invited her to, to come into him and it's written that it was not allowed to be sad in his presence that was not allowed. That carried the uh, the death penalty. Uh, sorry, um, in Esther, um, <clears throat> it's written that it's um, it was not allowed to come into the king without his uh, invitation. And it's rather similar with uh, here in Nehemiah, with not being allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. That could also cost you uh, your life. So th there's something very similar between Esther and Nehemiah, that they're both appealing for their people at great personal risk to themselves before the king. Now, there is a strange little note in Nehemiah 2, verse 6. The king, the king said unto me, the queen sitting by him, basically, okay, Nehemiah, I agree. When are you going? How long do you want to be there? 
Why does it say the Queen also sitting by him? Well, it may be to simply re-stimulate the reader's mind to think about Esther. Or it could also be that actually that Queen was Esther. Whichever way round it, it is, I think on a quite simple level, Nehemiah was inspired by Esther. So then we can inspire each other by our prayerfulness. I've often brought forward the, uh, the story or the, the, the fact from this country here in Latvia that I, I was up country, um, small village, went to see a sister and her kids were there at the door and I greeted them and I said, um, well, where's, where's your mum? And they said, well, it's, uh, it, it's just after lunch and uh, mummy's praying. She always prays after lunch. And that always struck me very deeply that that sister, well, and she had a whole bunch of young kids. She always prays after lunch. I happened to turn up there and she was not expecting me. Uh, I happened to turn up there just after lunch and I say to the kids, so where's mum? Mum's in her room praying. She always prays just after lunch. Now, her example inspired me and if we are prayerful as individuals and if we take risks for God as Esther did this inspires others it's not that we do it to to inspire others we do it for God but all the same there's an upward spiritual spiral it seems in a, a functional healthy relationship ecclesial relationship that we have with each other so Back to Nehemiah's prayer again. Notice how he starts it. Verse 5. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open, that you hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now. It's too easy to pray quickly. There are times when we have to pray just in a split second, and there's an example of that in chapter 2, verse 4, when Nehemiah is pretty scared, and the king says to him, For what you make request, so I pray to the God of heaven. Well, he did that in a, in a split second, and then he says to the king, If it please the king, uh, please let me go to Judah, to the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. So there is a place for split second prayer, but because God is prepared to accept quick prayer, doesn't mean that actually we can pray like that all the time. That's the problem. We can slip into that habit of dashing off prayer. Well, you remember that prayer is spoken of as incense in Revelation. And the way they made the incense in the Old Testament was, was quite a long process. Uh, it, it took all sorts of very careful preparation. And I, I think the way that Nehemiah starts this prayer it is typical of the way that a number of Bible characters, particularly David and the Psalms, start their prayers. They, as it were, come into the throne room of God. They don't just dash off what they want. There is very much a sense of approaching unto him. And if only we can get that clear in our minds, that when we are praying to God, it's not one part of our head, one part of our brain, talking to another part of our brain. Those words are going into the, the throne room of God himself, in heaven. And God is 
there is a personal being that is God and he is located somewhere let's call it heaven he is there and we are here but our words can reach to him and it does us good to remember that and it does us good to actually think what we're going to pray before we pray now we're touching here issues that are absolutely fundamental to day-by-day Christian life are you praying properly not just dashing things off I know God you know in that sense listens but uh, this is not how we should be praying all the time are you thinking before you're praying are you offering incense that is prepared prayer that's had some thought gone into it are you just dashing off dashing through this relationship with God like he's someone that uh, you're over familiar with and uh, it's all a formality these are things that we have to really think carefully about I particularly think that morning and evening prayers should be really a fundamental part of human life if we're in Christ we have to structure our time our day around those things be it children be it demanding long hours at work whatever is taking us up in our lives all the same we can structure those busy lives around serious prayer we must find that time and I always say to people who say hey, I don't have any time you can find time for what you want to find time for human beings are really superb at being able to do that quite amazingly now that's a practical thing I want to just reflect uh, on what he says there in verse 6 where he says to to God let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant now again he, he's quoting here or alluding here to Solomon's prayer first of Kings 8 verse 29 where Solomon had said that God's ear would be attentive and his ear and his eyes open to the prayer that was prayed in the temple but the temple was in ruins and Nehemiah was not even in Judah he's there in in, the, in Babylon so he was brought to realize that actually the temple cult the idea of worshiping God in a temple that had been taught by Solomon and from then on the whole concept that the Jews had that the temple is the house of God and that's where you pray to God and the prayers said in that house uh, have some sort of special power that whole idea God had broken for him and yet Nehemiah had not given up and he had gone on to believe that even though I'm not in the temple even though I'm not within this sort of God arranged religion of Judaism as it had been there in the temple in the days of Judah um, all the same I believe God will hear me personally and so God uses the punishment for sin in a positive way because going off to captivity in, in Babylon was a punishment destroying the temple was a punishment for their sins and yet God's God's amazing in this he doesn't just punish for sin say well you've got to pay a consequence he uses that in order to bring us or to try to bring us let's say 
closer to him. And that's that's just wonderful. And I think that one way and another or another, God does that in the lives of each of us. God uses circumstance in order to bring us to stand alone before him and to realize that outside the the limits of any religion, even a religion <clears throat> that God himself has set up and, and sanctified as he did with the temple, God is there waiting to relate with us individually. So God had, <clears throat> God had approved the temple, set the whole system up, but now he was leading Nehemiah to realize that actually God can have a relationship and wants to have relationship with individuals. And I think Nehemiah really did understand that. Now he says in verse 11, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Uh, and, you know, again, 2 Chronicles 7, uh, 15, had said that God would be attentive to the prayers of his people in the temple. But now he says, well, there's no temple anymore, but hear me. And I've seen this happen so many times, that people are rightly or wrongly pushed out of maybe the church they grew up in. There's a divorce, there's a family rupture, there's a church division. What, why do these things happen? Well, I know it's multifactorial why they happen, but one of the things that God, I think, tries to bring out of them in his wonderfully positive way, is to make those involved relate to him personally, so that even if their little religious life collapses, their church, their ecclesia, their temple, as it were, all the same, they are driven to the wonder of a personal relationship with him. And then they will realize that that temple, that church, that ecclesia, that sort of social club in the church they were in with, and now they're not in with, uh, but that was just a crutch. That wasn't the real thing. The real thing is a man like Nehemiah praying to God personally. And I, I think in later on in Nehemiah 2, I think you get this sense of him as a very lonely man. Verse 12, he gets to Jerusalem. I arose in the night. I didn't tell any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. It's a very private thing. There was no other animal with me, save the beast that I rode upon. I went out by night, even by the dragon well, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 16, And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor the priests, nor the nobles, nor the rulers, nor to the rest. So you get the impression of a very lonely man. That someone who had, it seems to me, been, been brought to God, by God, uh, by by his grace. Something else I'd like to bring out from chapter 1, verse, uh, well, verses 9 to 11. Nehemiah quotes here what God has said, If you turn unto me and keep my commandments, even though you are scattered to the utmost part of heaven, yet will I gather you from thence and bring you back unto the place that I have chosen. Now, the Jews in Babylon did not turn unto God, nor keep his commandments and do them. If they had the slightest interest in really doing them, they, they would have gone back as God had kept on telling them 
uh, they would have gone back, all of them would have gone back to the land. But they didn't, and in fact they slipped further and further into the sin of pride, of arrogance. They were more and more influenced by Babylonian ideas uh, and the, the way of the world in which they lived. And so God had said, if you turn unto me, then I will gather you back. They did not turn unto him, and yet he gathered them back. And Cyrus said, please go and build your temple of your God of Jerusalem, and here you are, I'll give you anything you want to do it. I mean, really, this is grace. This is not measure for measure. This is not God saying, well, if you do this, then I'll do that. Well, that's what God said. But as it happened, he, he so yearned for his people that he, it seems, overrode the condition that he'd set. Now, this is grace. And in our dealings with others, it seems to me that that grace that we have received, we should reflect to them in our relationships, not measure for measure, not if you do this, I shall do that. I'll do you a favour if you do me one. I mean, the whole teaching of the Lord Jesus and his whole definition of love it, it is quite the opposite to that. You know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 34 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah says that we have not been attentive to God's word. But he says here, verse 11, I beseech you, let your ear please be attentive. Please listen to my words, O God, even though, 9.34, we have not listened to your words. So Nehemiah perceived what was going on. He perceived that there was a huge grace going on here. And I think we, as I say, in our relations with each other, in our walking in this world, we have to see that. Okay, verse 11, at the end of the verse, I pray you, give your servant this day mercy in the sight of this man. That's the words that he used in praying to God. He considered the king just a man. And that's, so that's important, that those who seem to be so powerful and so significant in our lives, and those we even fear, are only men. We have, in one sense, too high an opinion of flesh. But what is a man? He's simply a man. He's simply flesh and blood and dust and water. That's all a human being is. And uh, that needs to be remembered. Okay, so then this king says to him, you're sad, aren't you? Verse 2. Why is your countenance sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Now, sad. Why is your countenance sad? It's the same Hebrew word as in chapter 1, verse 3, where we it's translated affliction. That the, the Jews in the province of Judah in Jerusalem were in affliction, were in great sadness. So then, Nehemiah's body language, unconsciously, because he didn't want to look like this to the king, um, his body language unconsciously reflected the state of his brethren. And so that's how it should be with us. If we really are one body, then the state of our brethren will be reflected unconsciously in us. That we take into the very fibre of our beings almost the state of others. <clears throat> and of course, you see this supremely 
in the death of the Lord Jesus, that as Peter says, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This was the extent of his mental identification with us. And we're, of course, asked to do the same. We're asked to identify with our brother. And this is why Christianity cannot be a religion of just sitting behind a computer screen, sitting in your apartment, sitting in your home alone. The whole thing is not designed to be lived in isolation. The whole idea is that we are part of the body of Christ. So then, he was worried because you're not supposed to be sad in the presence of, of the king. So he risked his life because he had so identified with his brother. As Paul puts it, if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. There he was in the wealth and comfort of the court of, of, uh, uh, of uh, Shushan. And yet he knew that his brethren in, in Jerusalem were suffering. They were sad, were in affliction, and although he tried not to show it, his face, his countenance, his appearance was sad. His heart inevitably showed in his demeanor. And again, we see a huge lesson for us that, that we may not suffer in the flesh what a lot of our brethren who are persecuted at this, this very moment at the hands of Islam and the hands of all kinds of evil that, that is going on in this world. We, we may say, well, thank God I'm not going through that. But actually, if we are truly identifying with them, their sufferings will be written on our face. And not only what might appear the, the dramatic things, like suffering at the hands of Islam, but uh, the suffering that people go through is, is incredible. And we may think that some people have a charmed life, but it seems to me that it can't be that one person gets the kingdom easier than somebody else. People go through hell. They absolutely go through hell. And you and I are asked to identify with them. And as I say, that is ultimately what the death of Jesus was all about. It was him identifying with us. And thereby, we are to identify him personally, but also with each other. And that's what Nehemiah did. And to the point of risking his life, to the point of being a fool in the eyes of this world. And yet, of course, it's a wonderful story. By grace, he pulled through. And so will we. Thank you.